Mike. Lauren. Mike, you have what I want. Which is what? Which is a Pixel phone. Ah, yes. That you use all the time as your daily driver. That's right. I would use a Pixel phone, except... Except what? The green bubbles. The green bubbles. The green bubbles. (laughs) Well, you should know that if you get a Pixel phone, that problem goes away. The green bubbles cease to become a problem for you, and they only become a problem for your iPhone-owning friends who see that as a problem. But there's so much social shaming around that. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter because you have the better phone and you live in a world where that social shaming is completely moot. I guess I'm wondering whether or not the new new Pixel... Would be worth that sacrifice. Do you think it would? Like if there was a super awesome new feature in the new Pixel phone that would make you want to buy one, that it would be worth it? Well, there already is a really super awesome feature on Pixel phones that I use on a secondary device, but that has not yet made me switch my SIM and turn that into my daily driver. I see. What would it What would it take? Um, it would have to like drive my car for me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it can. All right. We should find out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Kalori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And Wired Reviews editor Julian Chikatu is our friend of the pod today. He's joining us from New York City. Hey, Julian. Great to have you back on the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Okay. It's October, which means we're still in the middle of silly season over here. And no, I'm not talking about the whims of Elon Musk and whether or not he actually wants to buy Twitter, um, although that is still happening and it's still ridiculous. We are in hardware season right now, which is when some of the world's biggest tech companies reveal the flagship hardware they've been developing for the past 18 to 24 months. And today we're talking about Google. Yes, Google, the search engine and the ad business. They make hardware too, of course. And this week, they are hosting an event in New York City. We happen to be recording this podcast a day before the Google hardware event. So if Google ends up surprising everyone by announcing like new AR glasses, we're not going to be talking about it today. But both Julian and I have been in briefings about some of the new hardware. So let's get right to it. Julian, the next Pixel phone. Tell us about it. Is it going to make me want to switch? Uh, maybe, but <laughs> overall, there aren't really a ton of crazy changes here with the Pixel 7 and Pixel 7 Pro. A lot of the real improvements are in the software. So, for example, Google says it's made Night Sight, which helps you capture low light images two times faster thanks to the new Tensor G2 chip that's in there. Uh, and there are changes like a new feature called Photo Unblur, which I think is really cool. Basically, it lets you change any old existing photo that you might have in your Google Photos library, it will not make it look blurry, which is kind of crazy. And there were a few examples that they showed us that looked a little too good to be true, to be honest. So we'll have to kind of see how it works out. But that's one new feature. There's also cinematic blur, which lets you take portrait mode style videos. So there's portrait mode, which adds a blur effect to the subject. But now you can do that with video. It's very similar to what a lot of other phones have, like the iPhone has cinematic mode, for example. And another new feature is with Super Res Zoom, where Google says it's doing a lot more processing to make your zoomed out photos look a lot better. This is sort of a staple feature, but essentially Google's saying it's making it even better so you can go up to 30 times zoom on the Pixel 7 Pro and get a pretty 
crisp shot still at the end of the day. Cameras where it's at, right? Like we do this every year where it's like they talk about all the great improvements to the chip and the great improvements to the design, but then we spend all of our time talking about the camera because that's really where the innovation seems to be happening. Yeah. And one of the cooler improvements that I'm looking forward to test is that there's some apparently really good improvements with real tone, which was their feature that, uh, you know, when you took a picture of a person of color, too often the image came out either a little too dark or just just not great looking in, in, in a way that didn't affect people with lighter skin. So Google has now improved real tone a little bit more. So even in darker situations, you'll get an even better result, which honestly, I thought the results were pretty good in the Pixel 6. But Based on some of the sample photos I saw, it's kind of exciting to see that it's, it can get better. Uh, and so that's one of the features that I'm uh, you know, interested in just checking out for myself. And Google loves touting those kinds of features because it ties into their custom silicon and the way that they're using different cores of this chip to power you know, features that are specific to their hardware because they want Pixel to be sort of representative of the most optimized version of Google hardware and software that you can get. And so the camera is very much like a like a tangible or visual element of like, here's what we can do with this Tensor chip that we've developed. Julian, another thing that Tensor is enabling now are different forms of bio-authentication. So before on the Pixel 6, there was the in-display fingerprint sensor, different from a fingerprint like button that you might have seen on old phones. This was in the display. Yeah. And now there's another option. Tell us about this. Right. So there's now face unlock, which if you remember Ooh. the if you remember the <laughs> Pixel 4, they made a huge deal about having face unlock there. Uh, and it was this, you know, secure method that you could use with credit card apps and and all sorts of uh, financial authentication, for example. Here it's not that it's kind of just like a basic face unlock that a lot of Android phones have. Um, they do say that it's, you know, secure enough to, you know, it's not going to be able to spoof it with an image or anything like that, but they're not letting you use face unlock when you want to open up your banking app or if you need to, you know, send some money and you want to confirm your uh, yourself. Uh, so basically you're only going to be able to use face unlock to unlock your phone and unlock some, some sensitive apps but not everything that you might be able to use a fingerprint sensor for. Uh, and that's just because they don't really have the sensors in the selfie camera to capture the right amount of data, the 3D data that something like an iPhone can with its true depth sensors, for example, which kind of a shame, kind of a bummer, but I guess it's nice to have two options than just one. So I'm not complaining too much. Yeah, and, and as a result, you know, Google has the little, the tiny little hole punch camera Whereas on iPhone, you know, they have the, the the notch still, or some version of the notch. Yeah. And that's where they pack all of those sensors and IR sensors and things that capture the face data, whereas Google's decided just to use their camera, which has some depth sensing. But they're, yeah, to Julian's point, they're not getting like the full the full picture. Julian, what are some of the cool AI features we'll see on Pixel 7 that are not camera related. I mentioned earlier the app I love to use on the Pixel phone is the voice recorder app, which is really helpful for journalists and it does live transcriptions as you're recording a phone call um, or recording any kind of audio. Is there anything like that on the Pixel 7 that people can look forward to? Yeah, uh, actually, so there's three kind of 
really cool features, one of which, uh, you know, Pixel phones are known for some of their phone calling capabilities, you know, kind of weird that we have to say that because it's a phone, but um, <laughs> there, there are some specific things in here. So what, one of the features that Google has been known for is when you are uh, calling a 1-800 number, for example, uh, until now, right now what happens is it'll go through the actual call and on the display, it'll show you, uh, you know, press two to, you know, call this person. Uh, all of that stuff will be shown on the screen as the recording is played out. But with the Pixel 7, the Google Duplex technology that is powering all of this is essentially calling 1-800 numbers constantly. And they're making sure that these uh, numbers or, or the sort of outputs that are tied to you know number one, number two, number three, they're all the same and they're caching all of that data. So now when you call a 1-800 number, the numbers that show up on your screen will immediately populate. So you don't have to wait to hear you know your Delta robot say, press one for, you know, this help department, press two, all of that stuff will just show up on the screen immediately. So you can much more quickly get to where you need to go, or at least that's the idea. The other cool new feature is that uh, if you have someone in your life that frequently likes to send you audio messages, like uh, my mom, uh, she just, you know, <laughs> loves pressing that voice record button and just <laughs> sends an audio message. They are now being able to transcribe that automatically. So now if you get a text message that's an audio message, it'll just automatically be transcribed. Caveats, though, this only works with uh, Google's Android Messages app. So unfortunately, my mom is going to still have to just send me voice messages and I will have to listen to the whole thing. And I totally am listening to the whole thing, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, they're also now bundling in the Google One VPN for all Pixel 7 devices. So currently, you know, there's a VPN that you can use if you pay for Google One, which is Google's storage uh, program. But now it's free if you have a Pixel. So it's nice, but also not so nice because there's no Google One VPN for desktop. So you're kind of just stuck to using it on your phone. At least it's a small step in the right direction. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this is enough to switch. I'm not going to lie. So you're still hung up on the green bubble thing? I am. I'm telling you, it's invisible to you. It's only visible to other people. And you just don't have to think about it ever. So you never think about it. People complain. And then you say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Mike, when you send me photos from your pixel, yeah. it is the most annoying experience ever. Because if you're just using SMS, it shows up as a Google photo link. Really? If you, you and I communicate via signal, which is fine because we can send each other files and it's all it's all encrypted and all that for all the, you know, the trade secrets we're exchanging. Yeah, sure. Yes. But no, I mean, the, it, like looking at rich media or multimedia, when someone f from an Android phone is trying to send you something, it's it's not a great experience. Oh, that's So I don't want to be that person. We're going to try this later. We're gonna, and oh, by the way, this is also, it's a very Western world problem. Yeah. Messages is incredibly US-centric. Around the world, people are perfectly fine using WhatsApp, Messenger, Signal, Telegram. In China, there's WeChat. There, messaging apps abound. But here in the US, we're very stuck on our iPhones. I'm very stuck on my iPhone, and I'm very stuck in the blue bubble world. <sighs> the problem that you're describing, not being able to properly read media messages on an iPhone if they come from an Android phone, is a problem that exists in the world of iOS. I don't, right, it's an Apple problem. Yeah, I don't have that problem on a Pixel. Although I guess occasionally somebody will send me like a video from an iPhone and it looks like crap on my phone. Uh, but there's always ways around that. I can download it and watch it. You know, it, there's ways of fixing it. 
No, this this is very much an Apple thing at this point. The ball is in their court because Google has supported a standard known as RCS uh, that involves buy-in from the carriers and other phone manufacturers. And Apple is like the holdout. Apple's like, we're not supporting this because why would we support this? We have a superior product. It is called Messages and it runs on our data network and, <laughs> yeah. and you know everything's secure and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And and you know whenever I ask Google about RCS, they, t- they say, you should really ask Apple about that. Um, it's the Capulets and the Montagues. <sighs> it's going to result in chaos until somebody pulls the plug on both of them. Well, I have to say, like Julian, I did see the Pixel 7 and the Pixel 7 Pro last week, and they're they're pretty sexy phones. Mm. What about the watch? All right, let's talk about the watch. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the gadget turducken that is Fitbit and Google's newest Pixel watch. All right, there was more news beyond just Google's new smartphone this week. The company also officially announced its long-rumored Pixel Watch. This is its brand new watch, and already it feels a little bit behind the times. Julian, what's your take on this? I mean, I like how it looks. They have a really nice design here that you know reminds me of some Swiss watches because the the glass that covers the display is domed. And so this gives off this very luxurious kind of look to it. So every time I saw someone at the briefing wearing a watch, I was like, I want that on my wrist. Which is a very good thing, you know, to have a feeling to emanate from from a device that, you know, if you want to wear it, I think that's that's you know a success. But overall, it does feel like it is largely playing catch up in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, there's been so many other smartwatches like Apple Watch, Samsung has a lot of great watches, but here a lot of the Pixel Watch features are, you know, yes, it exists now. Finally, uh, there's heart rate tracking, there's ECG, there's SpO2 uh, sleep tracking. A lot of which is, you know, relying on the Fitbit technology that's been you know, in Fitbit watches for the past several years. Um, And of course, there are some quirks, like there are two fitness platforms on the watch. There's Google Fit and Google Fitbit. So I asked them why, uh, and they said, it's just the way it is. And uh, basically, they really want you to use Fitbit. And they made that pretty evidently clear because they spent like maybe one second on Google Fit. So I would not be surprised to hear that, you know, in six months, Google Fit is going to die in favor of Google Fitbit. I don't know if I should be saying Google Fitbit or just Fitbit, but you get my point. But yeah, so, you know, there's also some things that you'll have to unlock with Fitbit Premium. So there's a subscription play involved uh, if you want some more data and insights and such. One thing I don't like too much about the Pixel Watch is that they're going... uh, you know, all in with the Apple-like way of making a lot of things proprietary where they don't need to be proprietary. Uh, The straps, for example, are proprietary straps. So unlike on most Wear OS watches where you can just swap out the bands for any cheap band, uh, now there are very specific Pixel watch bands that you can only use. And maybe at some point they'll open that up to third parties. But for now, I believe it starts at like $49 for a strap. Uh, another proprietary thing is the charging mechanism. It is a magnetic charger, but it is not using Qi charging. Uh, it's just a specific type of wireless charging. And that's because uh, the back of the Pixel Watch is also domed or, or a little curved. And so they want to uh, you know, make sure that it's going to charge and it won't charge on like a Qi wireless charging uh, pad. So yeah, just you know, things that Apple does that doesn't seem like uh, very googly things to do and 
uh, a favor of a more open device that works everywhere with everything. And how much does it cost? Right. So uh, it's $349 for the Wi-Fi version and $399 for the LTE version, which at least there is an LTE version. So that's nice. (laughs) That feels like $50 too expensive, I think, even at $349. It feels like if they can get the watch under $300 because they're playing catch up, because there are other smartwatches out there that are much more capable that are at that $300 price point. And because there's one between $300 and $400 that is much more capable, I'm talking about the Apple Watch, it does feel kind of expensive at $350 and $400. It's also more expensive than Samsung's Galaxy watches, which, you know, they have a long history of producing watches that people like mm-hmm. and so you know why would someone not go with them yeah i do think it probably could stand to be a little cheaper uh one thing i might as well point out is that the case is stainless steel so you know that is usually an upgrade on an apple watch for example where it starts with aluminum mm-hmm. partly why that pr- price is probably a little higher mm-hmm. i'm not impressed by the pixel watch no yeah and you are a smart watch person um, i guess yeah. yeah, I'm not. And I've covered them for years. I'm just not impressed by this yeah. for a few reasons. One, it is expensive for what it is. Two, it lacks some more advanced health sensors. For example, it is doing heart rate tracking. And they're claiming that it is some of the most accurate heart rate tracking on the market because the sample rate is higher. So typically with a smartwatch, particularly when the people who make the watch want to conserve battery life, they will sample your heart rate at a certain rate when you're not in active mode and then when you go into workout mode when you're looking for a more accurate tracking they up the sample rate but that you know tends to suck up more battery life in this case google says that it's it's sampling your heart rate like all the time and so it's supposed, supposedly more accurate over time that's great but there are no temperature sensors they're not doing menstrual cycle tracking which is something the apple watch has had for at least a couple of generations now um they the the software feels like this whole idea that it's like fitbit nested in fit nested in this pixel watch and then somewhere in there there's probably some pebble dna too because (laughs) fitbit acquired pebble many years ago Uh, based on a short briefing i don't see how this software appears to be anything super special now the one thing that i think google should lean into and where there may be a future for this watch is if google does introduce new ar glasses anytime in the near future maybe this becomes an additional sensor on your body that somehow informs what's going on on your glasses or some other kind of heads-up display. The feature that Google did show off that looked cool was you can use an app on your watch as the viewfinder for the camera on your phone, Mm. on your Pixel phone. So you can literally see on your wrist what you might see from your phone's camera if you set it up somewhere else. I can imagine a world where you're wearing a heads-up display and the thing on your wrist becomes a control for what you're capturing or what you're trying to say through your your face computer, basically. Yeah, yeah. Something like that would be cool. But like as it stands right now as a $349 smartwatch that's like about five years too late to the market, not impressed. Yeah. Yeah, I think a part of the problem is that there's just no groundbreaking feature here as well. Like, you know, as I was saying, it's like playing catch up. And so if they had come out the gate with something new that, you know, this watch did that other watches didn't do then it'd be one thing like for example fall detection is coming to this watch but in the next three months you know not (laughs) out of the gate it's things like that that just 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 feels like uh, cool it exists and now is an extra option and i think that's really the 
you know, saving grace is that now we have a extra choice in a smartwatch when you're looking to buy for something. Yeah. And you've been deep in the Wear OS world for a while. Um, I think, are we just calling it Wear now? I don't know. With, with just like with everything else, Google. They have flip flopped so many times on their own <laughs> brand name that I don't know anymore. I think it's just Wear now. Okay. So if this is a Wear 3 watch, uh, how does it compare, like, experience-wise to the other Wear 3 watches, and what is the app support like? Wear 3, so basically there's maybe two to three Wear 3 watches out there. Samsung uh, Mont Blanc has a $1,200 crazy watch that no one should buy. I'm sorry. Um, But yeah, (laughs) and uh, a lot of those features are catching up uh, across the board. Um, So, you know, for the most part, by the end of this year, a lot of the Wear 3 features should be the same on all the watches. App support is getting better. Uh, I will say that hopefully the Pixel Watch is another way to further emphasize that, you know, the Wear OS Play Store is, you know, growing and that hopefully other developers will start to come on it because it is one other aspect of the Pixel Watch that, you know, isn't as great as the Apple Watch. Apple Watch has a lot of different apps that you can use, whereas there's not a ton of options on the Wear Play Store. So, um, it's not great, but you know, hopefully it'll get better. That doesn't matter though. That's my take. Doesn't matter. No, that doesn't matter. Third party apps don't matter because either you are building a smartwatch because it's, it's incredibly functional, like a Garmin watch. Like it's going to like last you as you climb Mount Everest, right? Like it's that sort of thing. Okay. Maybe not Everest, maybe Kilimanjaro, mm-hmm. maybe just a Wednesday morning surf session, right? Like it's, it's, it's going to do something for you that's very specific, or it's an ecosystem play where the maker of the smartwatch is doing it because they want you deeper into their ecosystem. And so it is their native apps and their integration with other devices that matter the most. Like it is much more important if you're wearing an Apple watch that it does something functional for you around messages right, or turn by turn in Apple Maps or whatever it is, then it does like show you that your Uber has arrived. That's helpful, sure, but it's not like the most important thing, right? You don't need to order pizza from your Apple Watch necessarily, like from a third-party app. It's how the the built-in apps work. That That's like, what, like I, I don't know, I just think like Wear OS as an app store platform for third-party apps could like go away and I don't think many people would notice, but if Google did something that was like a killer Google app experience on the Pixel Watch, then that would be a bigger selling point. And there are things that they have done over the past year to make that better. Uh, like they you know, actually made first-party apps for the Wear platform. Uh, Google Maps finally showed up this year. Uh, YouTube Music showed up this year. Uh, Google Assistant is finally back. Uh, and now with the Pixel Watch, they're also launching a Google Home app so you can toggle on your you know, smart lights from your watch uh, and such. So they have done some of that. But of course, there you know, is a long way to go as well. Julian, thanks so much for these insights on the new Google products. Let's take another quick break and then we're going to come back with our recommendations. Julian, our friend of the pod, what is your recommendation this week? Uh, yeah, I've been going to the gym lately. And what I do when I go to the gym uh, as I sit on an exercise bike and I watch a show. And one of the shows that I'm watching right now is called Cyberpunk Edge Runner. 
uh, if you you might have heard of the word, well, that's the word cyberpunk is you know fairly well known. But there was a popular game uh, that came out I think a couple of years ago called Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Had a bit of a mixed launch because it launched pretty broken. Uh, but basically, the show is an offshoot of that game, uh, set in the same sort of world. Uh, and you know, as you might glean from the name, it's in a very dystopian future where people augment their bodies with all types of different tech and gear and metal parts and weapons and all things like that. And so uh, I haven't finished the show yet, but it is uh, it is an animated show, I should say, uh, and it's on Netflix. But from what I've watched so far, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very good. It's very good. It's uh, very gripping. There's great music. Uh, the art style is really incredible. And the story somewhat maybe predictable but you know that doesn't mean it can't be enjoyable uh and uh so if you haven't watched an animated short or series in a while you know maybe watch this one awesome is that the one with keanu reeves am i making that that up is the game (laughs) which you know had the famous uh your breathtaking um moment that came out of that announcement what was the, your breathtaking moment? When when they showed off the game for the first time, Keanu Reeves came on stage and, and someone had yelled, uh, you're breathtaking. <laughs> yelled back, you're breathtaking. Yes. He's so good. He's so good. The man, the man knows how to take a compliment. <laughs> well, thank you for that recommendation, Julian. I'm glad we were able to work Keanu Reeves into this episode. We should probably do that every week. Yeah, when you host, sure. <laughs> Mike, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is a book uh, that I'm almost finished with. I'm on the very last chapter. It is called Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World by Mark Kurlansky. Mark Kurlansky is a nonfiction book writer. He writes a lot of historical books. He wrote one about paper. He wrote one about salt. This book is all about cod, the fish, the gadiform, the giant Atlantic animal that uh, is so prolific and so easy to catch and so easy to sort of predict where it's going to be that it has fueled society in the North Atlantic. Cod, the fish, Mm -hmm. has made civilization possible in places where farming can't be done. Uh, It's easily preserved by salt. We all know like Portuguese bacalao or Spanish bacala Mm -hmm. or Italian bacala. Mm -hmm. So all through the Mediterranean, all through the North Atlantic, cod is the thing that sustained people for 10 centuries. Uh, So this book goes back a thousand years and tells you about the story of cod. It's fascinating. You know, like I did not think that it was going to be as interesting as it was. And it turns out to be a total page turner. Um, It was written in 1999 and I think it won the James Beard Book Award. Uh, So it's received a bunch of accolades and it's a very old book. However, uh, it's a timeless story. (laughs) I really thought you were going to say it received a bunch of acodlades. Acodlades, yeah. That was really bad. I love cod. Yeah. I I love salted cod. People have very strong opinions about that. Bacalao. Either they like it or they really don't like it. And I could eat it. Like when I have been to Portugal, I could eat it every day. Every single day. Yeah. And there are a lot of recipes in the book, weirdly. Yeah. You know, just oh, like really? every chapter kind of has it because it, it, it hops through time, right? So the book goes all the way back to the 10th century and the 11th century and talks about the Vikings. So there's recipes that, you know, sort of 
approximate how the Vikings ate it. And then mm-hmm. as you get That's into- That's why it was salted, right? It was salted for preservation. Salted for preservation, right. right. Lasted a very long time. Uh, so then, you know, there's recipes from like the 1400s and the 1700s and the 1800s and, and modern day recipes. It's it's a lot of fun. That's fascinating. How yeah. did you come upon that book? I think what it was is that Kurlansky's books, he's written so many of them that a couple of them have been recommended to me. And the ones that were recommended to me, the subject matter maybe wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but I did look at all the other books he had written. And that one just jumped out at me as like, that's probably an interesting story. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, cod. So it was a catch. It's a total catch. (laughs) I fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Lauren, what's your recommendation? I have two recommendations. Okay. Neither are totally finished. My first recommendation is a book by our colleague Emily Dreyfus, along with Dr. Joan Donovan and Brian Friedberg, and it's called Meme Wars. That's M-E-M-E Wars, like a meme. Mm -hmm. And we've had Emily on the show before. So Emily used to work at Wired, and then she left Wired. Now she's at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard. Uh, which is where she was working on this book. And we had her on the show last year to talk about memes. So if you go back into our back catalog, you'll find that episode. The book is out. It's fantastic. I had the pleasure of speaking with Emily and Joan Donovan at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco last night. And you know, sometimes like as a journalist, you're hosting a talk, goes over an hour. And after a while, you, maybe you zone out just a little bit or you start thinking about the next question you're supposed to ask it was not i mean i was completely engrossed for over an hour and everything that they were saying and the line that they're able to draw from the occupy wall street movement of 2012 to the january 6th insurrection at the capitol in washington dc and how memes have become such an important part of the culture wars and the political culture wars that we're currently experiencing Um, And the ways in which memes have become weaponized and in some cases led people to very real life actual violence. Mm. Um, It's a sobering book. And so I read I read most of the book in preparation for this talk. And it's it's fascinating. It's it's so, so good. And I think like one of the things that's interesting about it is it's about the people behind the memes too, these operators um, or even just these average Internet users who have managed to bring power to these memes because we hear about these events as news people, we hear about them as these like sort of, you know, disparate news events that happen. And it's like there's a meme attached to it. But how the machine actually works is really what this book is about. So I recommend that. And my second recommendation, sorry to have two this week, but um, (laughs) it's cramming them in there. (laughs) I'm really cramming them in. Uh, By the way, my recommendations are not uplifting. I'm just going to let you know, like I should have caveated from the top. Like these are not fun. Uh, The second thing I've been doing is watching this 24 part series oh god <laughs> on the cold war i know oh, mike no. is like really okay <laughs> i talked to you oh, no. about this the other day you make fun of me for uh getting really into like six books from norwegian auto fiction author carl ove Knausgard. And yeah because his book is called my struggle <laughs> Like, I am allowed to make fun of that or to uh, at least raise an eyebrow at yes, it. Yes, that's what he wants. Okay, yes. So anyway, about your 24-part okay, so yes. documentary about the Cold War. Yes, okay. <laughs> it's It was produced by CNN in the late 90s. I believe it was 1998 that it was released. And um, 
I may have found it somewhere on YouTube. <laughs> I don't want to get it taken down. <laughs> so please, YouTube, don't take it down before I finish watching it. But someone has published it in its entirety on YouTube. And it's a fascinating glimpse at history um, that is still, we are still very much affected by today. I mean, it's so obvious. Everything that's going, I don't even want to get into it. I'm like, I'll just say, um, it's a really well-reported and straightforward account of the Cold War and all of its forms and factions and all of the countries involved in a way that I, I'm just finding fascinating. Like some of it I, I obviously read about in school. Some of it I probably didn't learn enough about growing up um, or I only learned like certain sides of it, you know, from like crummy history books. <laughs> and um, and so I highly recommend if you have the time at night and you can't sleep, um, checking out the Cold War documentary from CNN somewhere on YouTube. It's out there. Or if you're at the gym sitting on an exercise bike. Sure. Why you not? Can, you can either yeah. watch video of. Yeah. Stalin will get your heart rate up. Yep. Yep. Or you can watch dystopian animated sci-fi on Netflix. Just saying. Sure. That sounds great. Uh, this has been a really fun show, even though I don't know if our producer would agree. <laughs> We love you, Boone. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks, Mike, for being a really great co-host. Well, thank you, Lauren. And my primary pixel friend. <laughs> I look forward to sending you more <laughs> links to photos. <laughs> all right. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. And if you feel like it, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Our producer is the excellent and very patient Boone Ashworth. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.